Well, welcome back. This is Reading Through the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament. We are uh, gathering together again to wrap up the book of Genesis. This is for week six, uh, the week for February 5th through February 11. And we are reading Genesis 47 through Exodus 6 and Psalms 26 through 30. So thank you for being with us. Uh, today it should be a lot of fun as we uh, as we think about and meditate about the Old Testament scriptures, what they have to say to us, and uh, and just how we can get the message of what they're what the but God is saying to us um, in His in His Word. So in Genesis uh, forty seven, where we begin this week, last week you know we we saw Joseph. He revealed himself to his brothers. Um, uh, Jacob and Joseph were reunited eventually, and uh, so Jacob's family is now going to move to Egypt, which of course is all in God's providence, and um, God is is leading this family, and eventually we're going to now see, as we will turn to Exodus later on today, as well in this week, um, how God then leads that same family that he leads down to Egypt, he's going to bring them back out. So uh, Jacob's family uh, in chapter 47 settles in Goshen. Joseph takes care of, of them through the famine. And then in 48, we have Jacob blessing Ephraim and Manasseh before he also then blesses the rest of his sons. And then we have Jacob's death and then eventually Joseph's uh, last days and his death as well. And so we're seeing kind of this story wrap up, the story of Genesis, uh, the basic message, which is kind of uh, laying the foundation uh, for the Exodus. And it's very important to remember that this book was originally written by Moses um, after the Exodus. And so he's giving them the uh, backstory to the whole reason, uh, how everything's led up to their experience of redemption. And so Israel's experience of redemption, the whole backstory to that is the whole creation of the world and also this promise to bless the nations. Remember that promise to Abraham. God gave it to Abraham and it's ultimately rooted um, in his promises and uh, given to Noah, but also then also through the to the seed of the woman, uh, Genesis 3.15. And before that, it's anchored in that that uh, commission that God had given Adam and Eve to have dominion um, and uh, over the over all things. And so God ultimately is going to restore what was lost in the first Adam. So that's what Israel's story is part of that story. And that's part of their identity. Their identity is found within this whole uh, narrative that gives them meaning as God's people, as, as the people of, of God. Okay, so let's let's start walking through um, uh, this this passage, this section of scripture here in Genesis, and let's see what we can learn about it. And eventually, we will go into Exodus, obviously, as well this week. <clears throat> okay, so first of all, um, I've got some. Uh, let's see here. We got Genesis uh, chapter forty-seven uh, here, dealing with death. This is by Alistair Begg because um, eventually, right, we see uh, Jacob says in verse twenty-nine. It says here, it says, and when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. 
Alistair Begg writes this, dealing or death will come to us all. Therefore, the great question of life is not so much how do we face life and live in this world, but rather how do we face death and where will we live in the next world? This life isn't irrelevant. Indeed, it's vitally important, but we can't know what it means to live unless we have first learned how to die. Jacob is a wonderful illustration of how to live and die in light of God's promised plan. He was specific in his request regarding his death and burial, and his concern over burial place was primarily about theology, not geography. He recognized that in his death, he was making a statement about his place in the unfolding plan and purpose of God's relationship with his people. God had made a covenant with Abraham, promising that he would become the father of a great nation in the land of Canaan, the promised land. This promise was passed to Isaac and then to Jacob. Humbled by and entrusted with this promise, Jacob wanted it to be passed on to the coming generations through his final blessing and his burial location. He wanted his descendants to remember they were destined for Canaan, not Egypt. And he wanted them to remember his faith in the certainty of God's plan and purpose. Joseph honored his father's wishes, and Genesis 49-50 through 50 describes the elaborate funeral procession from Egypt to Canaan and the mourning that followed. Scripture tells us that the onlooking Canaanites noticed the elaborate ceremony, but they couldn't but they couldn't have known the full depth of its meaning. Similarly, many people do not, because they cannot fully understand why Christians deal with death in the way the Bible says we can. The Christian's perspective on death should be radically different from anything that the world is able to offer. If we simply go through the same motions as other people, with the same subdued ceremonies, the same sentimental music, and the same empty platitudes, we miss a prime opportunity to say in our dying and our mourning, death has no ultimate hold on us. We have been delivered from our sins and therefore from the terrors of death. Thanks be to God for giving us victory through Jesus Christ. See 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. When the world is watching, the way we deal with death is an opportunity to proclaim that the King of Heaven came to earth and transformed how we live and die. The covenant that Christ made on the cross cleared the debt of your sin and guarantees you and all believers an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. 1 Peter 1 4. Like Jacob and countless other saints who have faithfully gone before you, be sure to proclaim this in the way you speak of death, in the way you grieve for those saints who go before you, and in the way that, one day, you confront your own passing. How does this comfort you today? How does this reframe your own perspective on your future today? So there we have Jacob's death. Jacob dies. He's looking to a city that has foundations, whose maker and builder is God. And so he says, bury me in Canaan as a theological statement of, of to all of, all of his descendants saying, remember, remember God's promise. We have been given an inheritance. Then we have Genesis chapter 50, because we notice what happens right after when Jacob dies. And this is, this is understandable at some level, because Joseph's brothers are concerned now. Um, because remember, they think, oh no, since Jacob's gone, since, our da- since dad has died now, uh, maybe Joseph is going to be mad with us, and Joseph is going to punish us. And uh, so they're afraid now. They're afraid that Joseph is going to try to take revenge. They don't believe uh, necessarily, or maybe they're unsure of uh, God's, of Joseph's forgiveness and reconciliation to them. And Joseph tells them this, though. 
He says in verse 19 of chapter 50, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So he tells them what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This is stories of God's provision with Alistair Begg. He writes this, Children who love their grandpas tend to love their grandpa's stories. As Joseph's grandfather, Isaac surely would have had occasion to sit down with him and relay story after story of God's provision, to speak truth into his grandson's life. You and I can only imagine how Joseph must have cherished Isaac's stories and instruction. But the goodness of God to his family in generations past appears to have sustained Joseph even in his most painful moments. For a remarkable truth about this man is that he was always aware that God was in control. Surely Joseph was learning to say, as the psalmist would later sing, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 27, verse 13. Indeed, Joseph was given one opportunity after another to witness God's providential care. As a 17-year-old boy, he saw God at work even in the midst of his brother's hatred. Reuben's suggestion that they put him in the pit ultimately spared his life. But it was God's intervention that saved, that gave Reuben the idea and enabled Joseph's brothers to go along with his plan. Shortly afterward, an Ishmaelite caravan arrived at just the right time, as if by divine appointment, which it was. They were doing their business as usual. They could have taken a look at Joseph and said, forget it, we don't need him. Yet God's providence determined that they would buy Joseph. In each case, God used the selfish interests and desires of others as instruments in saving Joseph's life, and eventually the lives of many. The truth of Genesis 50 verse 20 is the foundation of Joseph's life. Although his brothers intended evil, God intended good, and God's intentions always went out. Joseph's earthly father may have been back in Canaan, but his heavenly father went with him into Egypt. His path may have been rerouted by the envy of his brothers, the lust of Potiphar's wife, the anger of Potiphar, and the selfishness of the cupbearer, but supremely it was directed by his God for the good of his people. Do we treasure this truth about God as Joseph did? God will accomplish his purposes even when we have no idea where we are headed or what he is doing. This is our hope in every circumstance. When trials come, then we must not shun them, since we know they come from the hand of a kind father, and that they somehow further his plans to save and sustain his people. We see the goodness of God in the lives of our spiritual family and generations past, in scripture and throughout the history of the church. You can be certain that in all your days and doubts, in all your fears and failures, in all your fractured relationships and broken dreams, you remain under his fatherly care. And ultimately, that promise that God works all things together for good for his people, that he, his good intentions, his holy, good, pure intentions went out over the evil, impure, uh, devious intentions of mankind uh, is the great comfort that we see that we have for ourselves. But also it eventually leads us to the comfort that's found then in the book of Exodus, because God uses all of the evil intentions of man to bring about his great purposes for the good of his people. And we see that further illustrated in the book of Exodus. Now, this is a little Exodus intro as we kind of think about um, why is the book of Exodus important and what should we think about it as we turn the pages of our Bible to the second book 
of scripture. Um, this is a little thing called Exodus intro. I'm, I'm calling it that or why the book of Exodus matters for your life. This is by Silverio Gonzalez from core Christianity. And um, this will hopefully help you to kind of get a big picture of what God is teaching us and the importance of the book of Exodus as we now turn to see how God's intentions and plans are now going to be carried out in the lives of his whole people um, here in Exodus. Uh, uh, Silverio Gonzalez writes this, Exodus comes from a Greek word meaning exit or departure. The Exodus happened around either 1240 or 1440 BC. Tradition holds that Moses wrote the book of Exodus. Though scholars speculate and debate, there is no good reason to deny that Moses wrote the book. The book of Exodus records the history of, uh, of Israel's enslavement to Pharaoh and their freedom through a deliverer that God raised up. Their deliverer was named Moses, and Moses was given the task of leading his people out of Egypt to the promised land, the land of Canaan. This event was called the Exodus. Exodus reveals the, way God, reveals the God who saves his people. From Exodus, we come to understand that God is actively involved in history. He hears prayers, he answers, he saves, but God does things in his own way, in his own time, and for his own glory. Exodus teaches us what we should expect from God. Exodus gives us reason to trust God in difficult times. Exodus shows how God is at work to save the world from sin, death, and the devil. The story begins with Israel as an oppressed people in Egypt. Israel was a foreign people who came to Egypt during a great famine. The Pharaoh welcomed them. Years went by. A new Pharaoh ascended to the throne, and this Pharaoh was unaware of the history of all Joseph did to help Egypt. The Pharaoh grew, wor grew worried by the size of Israel's population, so he decided to do two things. The first was to force the Israelites into slave labor. The second was to mandate the killing of all newborn male children. It was into this situation that Moses was born. In an attempt to spare Moses, his mother placed him in a basket and sent him down the Nile River. Farther down the river, Pharaoh's daughter was bathing and accidentally discovered the baby Moses. She recognized the child as belonging to one of the Israelites, but she had compassion on the boy and adopted him. After many years and a new Pharaoh, God met Moses in a burning bush. There God called him to be his prophet and lead his people to the land of Canaan. But there was a problem. The new Pharaoh still held God's people in slavery. When Moses approached Pharaoh about freeing the Israelites, Pharaoh refused to let them go. Thus, God intervened. He brought plague after plague upon the Egyptians until Pharaoh agreed to let the Israelites leave. It took 12 plagues for Pharaoh to admit defeat. As Moses and the Israelites began to leave, Pharaoh, still unwilling to admit defeat, changed his mind. He and the Egyptian army pursued the Israelites up to the Red Sea. Moses and the people had come to look to what looked like a dead end, but God was with them. Through a great miracle, God spread the waters of the Red Sea so that Israel could walk across on dry land. When the Egyptians tried to walk across the parted sea, God released the waves, drowning the Egyptian army. After God saved his people from Egyptian bondage, he began to prepare the world for a salvation from greater slavery. Through the Mosaic law and Israel's temple worship, God brought his people into a loving relationship to prepare them for the coming Messiah. The Messiah would come to save the world from sin, death, and the devil. This Jesus did. Exodus shapes both Jewish and Christian identity. Its themes are a major part of the Psalms and the Old Testament prophetical books. Many themes in Exodus are taken up in the New Testament and displayed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 
Exodus is a book about salvation from slavery. It records the history of Israel's enslavement to Pharaoh and their freedom through a deliverer that God raised up. This deliverer was named Moses, and Moses was given the task of leading his people out of Egypt to the promised land, the land of Canaan. This event was called the Exodus. In the United States, people tend to think of the African-American experience in regard to slavery, but let's think broader than that. Slavery exists in many forms. Some slavery is imposed from the outside. Other slavery is within our hearts. Exodus answers both. Exodus gives words of hope to people suffering from injustice and to those suffering from their own demons. One way to think about slavery existing on the inside within the heart is through the lens of addiction. I have seen drug addiction up close and personal. No one ever plans to become addicted. If anything, people begin with a desire to escape life. After a while, the addiction becomes a harsh master and the one addicted becomes a slave. An addict may even begin to steal from friends and family to support the habit, to obey the master. The very thing one uses to find salvation becomes the bondage from which they need saving. Drug addiction is a clear picture of humanity's struggle. It shows how ugly life can be. All people desire happiness. The problem is that life is filled with misery. We are victims of our own warped desires, and we are victimizers of other human beings. We need an escape. We need salvation. Like drug addiction, people don't break free from life struggles alone. They need an intervention. They need someone to come from the outside and save them from the bondage and darkness. This is what God does. He enters into our lives and he saves us from ourselves and the oppression of sin, death, and the devil. When Jesus began his ministry, he described his mission as proclaiming liberty to the captives. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke four eighteen through 19 This salvation comes to its summation in the resurrection from the dead. All who put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation will rise to glory with Jesus and enjoy, enjoy eternal life with God. Exodus shows us the God who is concerned to save his people. It shows us that our God is working, often in the background and beyond our knowing, to save us in ways we could never imagine. As you read Exodus, pay attention to how God saves his people each step along the way. Let this illumine your understanding of how God works in your life. See God enter into a world of death to bring his people into a new life. Use this book to reflect upon how God has raised you from death to life through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's very helpful, isn't it? So now as you think about and you go through the whole book of Exodus, think about those themes of redemption, Exodus, uh, liberation, um, slavery, and how God takes us from a place of, of slavery and death to a place of freedom and life. That's what salvation is. And God is illustrating that and giving his people in the Old Testament uh, a taste and a foretaste of the even greater salvation that he was going to accomplish in Jesus Christ. So as we read this book, let's think about it through some of those lenses and those themes and, and, and come to this book um, expecting to see our salvation worked out. So as we now turn to Exodus chapters 1 and 2, um, I want to think here about, because we see what happens, right? The, the Pharaoh 
comes and and oppresses God's people. He orders the the destruction, the killing of the Hebrew boys, um, and such. Uh, this is a uh, so as we think about these first two chapters, and we think about remember how Moses was rescued. He was put into a uh, an ark of sorts and uh, put into the Nile River. Um, and saved by the God of Israel in a providential way, right? He's found by uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Um, and uh, and so we see how, how all that happens. Um, this is from Chad Bird. This is called The Christmas Story. No one wants to talk about the Holy Innocence. And um, the Holy Innocence, I believe, refers to... Um, whenever Herod, you remember with Jesus, right? So when Jesus was born, Herod wanted to have Jesus killed. Remember that? And so what does he do? Well, he sends in uh, soldiers of sorts or and commands uh, the children, the boys of as a certain age and under to be killed um, in a very similar way that Pharaoh does. So Pharaoh and Herod are similar characters in the Bible story and what they do trying to destroy the redemption and the salvation that God's trying to accomplish and working to accomplish. And we see how God rescued Moses and also then how God rescued Jesus as well. So this is from Chad Bird, uh, the Christmas story no one wants to talk about, the holy innocence. He says this, around two years after the birth of Jesus, something happened that no one really wants to talk about. It's not an eggnog-sipping topic of conversation while chestnuts are roasting on an open fire, nor will heartwarming Christmas carol be inspired by it, in which worshipers will sing, O bloody town of Bethlehem, how shrill we hear thee cry, your mothers shriek while fathers weep, the graveyard lullaby. Imagine a church twinkling in candlelight glow singing that. But sometimes, very often in fact, the very topics we assiduously avoid are those that we most need to discuss. So, take a deep breath, ready your heart, and walk with me into Bethlehem for a day of horror and a day of hope. If every memorable story needs a villain, ours certainly has one. His name is Herod, or if you wish, Herod the Great. Sure, Herod was a great builder, but here is a snapshot of his ethical greatness. He had three of his sons killed, one of his wives executed, along with her mother and grandmother, and he left instructions that when he died, there would be a mass execution of Jewish elders so as to cause great mourning upon his own passing. That, at least, is what we know from Josephus. The first century Jewish historian passed over more than one more murderous deed of Herod, either because it was unknown to him or because so minor a bloodbath hardly seemed to merit inclusion. We usually call it the slaughter of the holy innocents, or simply the holy innocents. The church re- traditionally remembers it today when, he write, when he's writing this article, December 28th. Sometime after the birth of Jesus, when the star-guided magi showed up in Jerusalem, asking around for the one born as king of the Jews, Matthew tells us that Herod was Tarasso, This Greek verb can mean troubled, agitated, vexed, terrified, disturbed. Herod was indeed a disturbed man, in both senses of the word. He did what any other unscrupulous, power-hungry, furious, and disturbed politician might have done. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. And the unsingable carol goes on. Butchers clad as soldiers at Herod's mad behest, a boarded wheel with blades of steel they thrust in tender chests. Matthew does not record this gruesome act of state decreed infanticide for shock value or to reveal the cancerous soul of Herod. As with most recorded episodes of violence in the Bible, the context tells us why this or that particular event is included. Let's see what Matthew does with it. 
Immediately after recording Herod's evil action, the evangelist adds, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew is quoting the prophet Jeremiah, who employs Rachel as the personification of the northern tribes. As one of the wives of Jacob, Rachel was the mother of Israel, one who built up the house of Israel. As a mother who suffered much during her barrenness, then later suffered death during the birth of her second-born son, Rachel typifies grief, pain, loss, and mourning in Israel. Since she was buried in Ramah, a city through which exiles had to pass on their way to Assyria, Rachel is pictured as lamenting and weeping as her children are no more. As Jeremiah used Rachel as the personified Israel, weeping over lost and exiled children, so now Matthew does the same. Lady Rachel is now Lady Bethlehem, weeping for her murdered sons, lamenting over the loss of their lives as they go into the exile of a much too early grave. But the grief is not only for the slaughtered children, it is also for the exile that Jesus, the new and better Joseph, had to endure as he and his parents one of whom was named Joseph, fled to Egypt. The same Hebrew words used by Jeremiah for Rachel's refusal to be comforted were were earlier used to describe Jacob when he thought Joseph was dead, but unbeknownst to him, Joseph had been exiled to Egypt. Rachel refused to be comforted as Jacob refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. The tears in Bethlehem were both for the sons that were killed and the son that was exiled. But there's a biblical twist to this story. The exile of Jesus to Egypt does follow the pattern of the exile of Joseph and later all Israel to Egypt. The Messiah, who is Israel in one man, must follow the path of his forefathers. But he's also, in a backward sort of way, completing the pattern of the life of Moses. The lives of both Jesus and Moses were threatened by tyrants, Herod and Pharaoh. Both of their births were connected with state-decreed infanticide, and both had to flee. But here's where things get interesting and backwards. Moses fled from Egypt, and Jesus fled to Egypt. What was a haven for Jesus was a hazard for Moses. When Matthew describes the return of Jesus to Israel, he echoes language used in Exodus to describe the return of Moses to Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Exodus 4.19 And parroting this, Matthew writes that the angel told Joseph, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Matthew 2.20 Jesus, as the new and better Moses, following the deaths of the children of God in Bethlehem, underwent a sort of double exile. First, exiled to Egypt to trace the path trod by Joseph and Israel. Second, exile to Israel. Yes, to Israel, because the promised land was a land under slavery, with Rome serving the role of Egyptians. The Israelites were in exile on their own soil because they were an occupied people. To paraphrase both Nehemiah 9.36 and Ezra 9.9, we may be living in the Holy Land, but we are slaves because foreign people are ruling over us. When Moses arrived back in Egypt, he began the great action of liberation in the Exodus. 
When Jesus, the new and better Moses, arrived back in Israel, he readied himself for the greater exodus to come when he set us free in the exodus of his death and resurrection. When Pharaoh decreed that all the boys born to Israelite mothers would be cast into the Nile, little did he know that from the same Nile would arise a boy who one day would bring liberation and life for Israel. Likewise, when Herod decreed that all the boys in and around Bethlehem were to be slain, little did he know that from death itself one would one day arise a man who would bring liberation and life for Jews and Gentiles alike. From his earliest years, therefore, Jesus was surrounded by two things that would thenceforth define his mission, death and exile. His infant brethren, the martyred boys of Bethlehem, testified by their deaths just how wrong our world has become. When helpless infants are slaughtered, do we need further evidence of the brokenness of the world? That cold, calculated, murderous episode defines the world, our world, that Jesus was born to save. And how would he save it? by going into exile. First to Egypt, to redo what Israel had undone during their rebellious wilderness years. Second, to Israel, a home exile, where he would be persecuted by Rome and his own people, tortured and executed, then cast into the exiled tomb of death itself. His resurrection is his repatriation to the fatherland of life everlasting. And it's our homecoming as well. On December 28th, therefore, we commemorate both a day of horror and a day of hope, a day when children were butchered in Bethlehem, horror indeed, but also a day that began a life of exile for the Messiah, who one day would be killed himself, and in that death, destroyed death forever by his resurrection for us. Ye martyred boys of Bethlehem, from near the altar pray, to Christ your Lord, whom Herod's sword slew not that awful day. O Rachel, Rachel, weep no more. Your sons shall dry your tears. For flowers bloom where darkness loomed, since Christ, our light, appears. So God here, answer, see, he, he, just like he did uh, for Moses, he did for us in Jesus, in saving him and then using this, this um, the mediator of the old covenant, but ultimately pointing to the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus who bring about liberation for his people from sin, death, hell, and the devil. So God hears the cries of his people. We see this in Exodus chapter 2, verses uh, 23 and 24. Uh, We read that during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is from Alistair Begg. God hears our cries. The promise of food had encouraged Jacob and his family to leave their famine-stricken land and relocate to Egypt with Joseph. For a time, everything was terrific, but their experience took a turn for the worse when a new king came to power. He didn't like the idea of Israel's people growing in stature and number, so he put them to work, ruthlessly enslaving them. Their lives were filled with tears and bitterness. The people of God still had his promises, but those promises seemed empty. It had been easy to trust God when they were free and well-fed. It was far less easy when they were enslaved. In the long, long years of oppression, some must have said to themselves, 
I think that God has forgotten his promise. I'm not at all sure that he is really going to do what he said. Yet despite this, they called out to God, desperately seeking rescue. God had not forgotten, and his answer came. God heard their cry, he heard their groaning, and in response, he implemented a rescue plan. God would not leave them in their misery. He was going to fulfill his purposes for his people and set them free from slavery. He remembered his covenant, which is not to say that his promises to Abraham had slipped his mind, but that now, at exactly the right moment, though no doubt not as soon as his people would have chosen, he moved to keep his covenant to his people. This is what God's people need to be reminded of now, just as they did then. God hears our groaning. God knows our circumstances, and he will act. Not one of his promises will fail. Indeed, when we are at a loss for words in our distress, we discover that the Holy Spirit even intercedes for us through our prayerful groanings. That's the level of God's concern for each of us and the depths of his determination to do eternal good for his people. When your soul's cries seem to go unheard, when you begin to wonder if anyone truly cares, recall who God has revealed himself to be in Egypt and supremely in his son. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Keep crying out for deliverance. God hears, he cares, and he works on your behalf. And so now, as we turn our attention to chapter 3 now, God did hear their prayers. He heard their groanings. He heard their cries. And we see what he did. He uh, calls Moses, who's here attending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro and Midian. And here's old Moses, right? He's probably around 80 years old now, right? 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and now 40 years roughly leading God's people. And so here he is. He's uh, shepherding the flock of God. And who appears to him but the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, comes to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And Moses is drawn to this and says, I'm going to turn aside and go see this. And then the Lord Jesus calls to Moses, Moses, Moses. And he says, here I am. Let's think about this, um, this, this name of God um, in Exodus chapters 3 and 4. And he says, I am who I am. Uh, this is from Chad Bird. Oh, Adonai, a scandalous confession in the burning bush, Jesus. This is uh, Chad Bird. Yesterday had us staring into the vast amphitheater of creation, watching the wisdom of God carve out caverns and kindle fire in the hearts of stars. Today we step into a very different space. We're in the Sinai wilderness. Sheep bleeding, sand swirling, sun scorching, and there, shuffling along with his flock, is an octogenarian named Moses, just out earning a paycheck from his wife's dad. He spies a bush pregnant with flame, but no ashes blackening the ground. His curiosity peaked. Moses advances to inspect the mystery. And at that moment, his life, and indeed the life of the world, is irrevocably changed. Moses, Moses, a voice says. Hineni is his, is his Hebrew response. Here I am. 
Here I am. Now we know who this I is. We know about Moses' infant voyage down the Nile in his itty-bitty ark, his coming to age in Pharaoh's house, his deep-sixing of an Egyptian guard, and the last four decades of his life on the lamb, during which he met and married Mrs. Moses, raised a pair of youngsters, and got into the shepherding business. Yes, we know Moses. The more important question is this. Who's in the bush? That's not as simple a question as it might appear. First, we're told the angel of the, of the Lord is in the bush. In Hebrew, malak, though usually translated angel, is the more generic noun, messenger. Okay, so the messenger of Yahweh is in the bush. Simple, there's your answer. But not so fast. Next, we read, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Chapter 3, verse 4. So Yahweh sees, and God calls? Now this is getting confusing. Next, the fire voice identifies himself. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then he proceeds to say that he is the great I am, chapter 3, verse 14, whom we call Yahweh. So, who's in the bush? The messenger? God or Yahweh? Well, yes. Throughout the Old Testament, the Malak or angel of the Lord, his messenger or spokesman, visits individuals or groups, beginning with Hagar. He speaks as God, has the name of Yahweh in him, acts with divine authority, and is called both Elohim and Yahweh. He is obviously divine, but still distinguished from God as his messenger. Who is this? He's the son of the Father, his spokesman, his word man. Jesus is in the bush. Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Adonai. Today, and this is when Chad Burt is writing this, December 18th, the church sings the second of the O antiphons. Each of these antiphons addresses the Messiah by a different name. All are steeped in Old Testament stories and imagery. On this day, we sing to Christ as Adonai. O Adonai and ruler of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and gave him the law in Sinai, come with an outstretched arm and redeem us. In Hebrew, Adon, the simple form of Adonai, can be a term of respect or courtesy for an earthly figure, like a husband, brother, father, king, or prophet. In these cases, it is often translated Lord. Think of the phrase lords and ladies. However, Adon is also used to refer to the Lord of Lords himself, Deuteronomy 10, 17. The longer form, Adonai, is another name or title for Yahweh himself. Let me warn you, in our relativistic religious age, today's antiphon is highly scandalous. It is a bold, unapologetic confession that the God of the Old Testament, who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and who later gave the Ten Commandments to Israel, is none other than the Jesus of Nazareth. This confession will win no applause in ecumenical circles. It is unapologetically exclusive. He who claims to worship the God of the Old Testament, but does not acknowledge that Jesus is that God, worships a false God. Yahweh is Jesus. Elohim is Jesus. Adonai is Jesus. He is wisdom who created the world. He is Adonai who redeemed Israel from Egypt. In brief, we know no God apart from Jesus the Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we know everything we need to know about God. As the Messiah himself says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, Paul affirms, Colossians 2.9. To go looking for God apart from Jesus Christ is to find nothing but an idol. What we need is for Adonai to look for us. Come with an outstretched arm and redeem us. With his arm, the Lord redeemed Israel from the death grip of Pharaoh, Exodus 6.6. He stretched out that strong arm to cast down plague after plague, to slay the firstborn of their enemy, to split the Red Sea, to transform rocks into rivers, and to guide his people to the land flowing with milk and honey. Stretch out that same hand, O Adonai, to redeem us, and he will. He will stretch out his infant arm to touch his mother's face. He will stretch out his hand to heal a leper. He will stretch out his hand, both hands, to have them nailed to the bloody wood on which we are redeemed. O Adonai, our Lord Jesus, messenger of the Father, bearer of the Spirit, ruler of the house of Israel and head of the church, wrap us in your strong, redeeming arms of mercy. So that's who uh, Moses is confronted with, right? He's confronted with Jesus Christ in the bush, speaking to him. And uh, God uh, there reveals his name. And let's think a little bit more about that name, a name like no other. This is, this is from Alistair Begg here, as we think about the name of God. He says this, God has made himself known to us by making his name known to us. When we think of God's name, we ought to think of his nature, his essence, his character, and his attributes. His name sets him apart from everyone and everything else, representing all of who he is. God's encounter with Moses at the burning bush recorded for us in Exodus 3 underscores the relationship between God's name and his character. As Moses approached the bush, God instructed him to take off the shoes from his feet as he was standing on holy ground. In the ensuing dialogue, after being commanded to go to Pharaoh and demand the Israelites released, Moses understandably, understandably asked, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God's answer, I am who I am. God uses the verb to be, I am, to convey his name. By using this verb, he distinguishes him between himself and all false gods, which ought to call themselves, I'm not. Idols are made by human hands, or in our day, often within our hearts. Craftsmen fashion them out of wood, stone, or ivory, and fasten them on pedestals. Nevertheless, they inevitably topple over and need to be righted again. An idol demands our service, but it cannot save. It never delivers what it has promised. But for the creator of the ends of the earth, it is justifiable and right that he should be known as I am, for he is like no one else. He was not created. He is completely self-existent. He is completely self-fulfilled. He is in need of no one and nothing. That which he has always possessed, he still possesses. He knows neither beginning nor end. He fulfills all of his promises. He is the God of limitless life and power. We are to exalt his name and his name alone, for this is what we were made for. All of us struggle not to bow down before idols, those created things that we worship and make sacrifices for, because we think they will bring us life. But if we would worship him as we ought to, our idols must fall before him. He is the only creator, the only I am, the only one who rules heaven and earth. 
So God here comes to Moses, comforts him, speaks to him and says, I'm going to be with you. This is who I am. I am the I am. I am the one who is and who's active. And this is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He goes to Pharaoh. We see how Pharaoh initially responds in chapter five, right? Um, he uh, rejects it and says, listen, you, you don't have any more straw. You're going to make bricks without straw. And then eventually in chapter six, God promises redemption. And we see God has uh, resolved to show forth his might and his power uh, to save uh, his people. I want to close with this from Alistair Begg. This is called The True Israel, and it's based off of Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, which say, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Because uh, Israel is viewed here as God's firstborn child, as the child that he loves, and he called them out of Egypt And so as we think about uh, Israel being called out of Egypt, we also see ultimately Jesus Christ as the true Israel who was called out of Egypt, as we talked about. Remember, he, he had to run to Egypt, flee from Egypt, and then come back to Israel. So let's close with this, and then we will close with, then we will uh, wrap up with a recording of a, of a psalm. Uh, Here we go. So when Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph took him to Egypt to protect him from King Herod's persecution. When Matthew records that event, he includes these words from Hosea, made over seven centuries before, and explains that they were in fact a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. But Hosea's words weren't referencing an an individual, but rather a nation. We may think then that there is a rather cavalier use of scripture by Matthew. But in truth, Matthew knows exactly what he's doing. He is deliberately identifying Jesus with Israel. As God has called his beloved people, his son, out of Egypt to worship him in the promised land, so now Matthew says God was calling his one and only begotten son, the Lord Jesus, out of Egypt and back to the promised land. Jesus, though, was different. Like the Israelites, he was tempted in the wilderness. But unlike the Israelites, he didn't sin. Jesus is the true Israel, the true son. At the outset of his ministry, Jesus chose 12 disciples. This was a significant number. By choosing 12, Jesus made a statement. He, the true Israel, was calling to himself people to be part of a new Israel. His 12 disciples, rather than the 12 tribes of Israel, were now its foundation. In that choice, the focus of God's people was and is realigned. Since then, the true Israel is not found in what's now called the Middle East, nor does it consist only of the biological descendants of Abraham. Instead, it comprises Abraham's spiritual descendants, both Jew and Gentile. God's children are those who follow Abraham's example by placing their trust in God's promises, which are fulfilled in Jesus. The promise, says Paul, depends on faith and will always rest on grace. It doesn't matter whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, rich or poor, male or female. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. The same principle always applies. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, Galatians 3.29. We are all one in Christ. The gospel is the same for all, for the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Religious and moral people are in need of the same salvation as someone who never attends church and has lived with no regard for any standard or creed. We have only one story to tell, but it is the only story we or anyone needs. We are undeniably imperfect, 
We, like the first Israel, are prone to wander from our Father and to worship idols. But Jesus, the perfectly righteous one, the better and true Israel, died to bear our sins that we might come and cast ourselves upon his mercy. We have been gathered into his great company, into the framework of the true kingdom of Israel, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who he is and what he's done. Today, through faith in Christ Jesus, you are a child of God, as beloved as he was and is. There we go. So now as we see uh, the redemption of Israel from Egypt, we should think about the ultimate work that Jesus Christ did as the true and better Israel. And in him, when we believe in him and trust in him, we are the offspring of Abraham, the true offspring of Abraham, whether we be Jew or Gentile. When we trust in the Christ that Abraham trusts in, when we believe and follow the one who was in the bush, then we are God's people. So there we have it. Now we're going to close um, with a uh, psalm uh, singing here. Let's see what I got here. What do I have uh, mixed up here? So we got Psalm 27 uh, this week, which is a beautiful psalm. Uh, Psalm 27. Let me read it real quick for you, um, or at least part of it. Um, Yeah, it opens up with this, right? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And so, and so on. And it closes with this way, right? It says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And so here, Israel is being called upon to wait for the Lord to be patient, to expect his redemption to happen in his good time and in his own way. So let's think about this psalm. This is, I believe, probably again from uh, um, uh, poor Bishop Hooper. Um, and uh, listen to this as you think about it. And I look forward to being with you next week, week seven, as we continue in the book of Exodus and see how God redeems his people from slavery. Thank you for listening. Take care and God bless.
How? 